0: Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Um, there, I don't know about this. I'm going to go a slight little rant real quick. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this thing recently that started happening to us, or it's specifically me, a robocalls. Uh, does anyone else get those things, robocalls? Okay, I, I have to confess, they're like it takes a lot to get me angry. In fact, I don't actually get mad at a lot of things. But the things I do get mad at tend to be ridiculous things. In fact, my wife tends to be like, Why are you so upset by that? It's like somebody could offend me and I wouldn't get upset, but you let telemarketers call me throughout the day and it just fires me up. And so I'd kind of gone on this, like in my like rumination world of like perfect revenge of like trying to figure out who they are so I could robocall them. I, I don't know if you ever think, I sit around being like, if I could only figure out who was behind these robocalls, then I could start robocalling them and it would be awesome. Right? Um, and so this, this thing, it happens to me like throughout the week, uh, starting like a few months back, I, I was starting to get like three to four to five calls a day. And then they started doing this crazy thing called spoofing, right, where it looks like a local number. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's like your area code. And so it's like, oh, maybe this is my daughter's school. And so you're like, hello. And they're like, please hold. I'm like, ah, You know, or it's like, hello, and it's like, you, congratulations, you've just won a six-night, seven-day trip to Antarctica, you know, or whatever. And you're like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to find them, and I'm going to destroy them. But uh, what's been kind of Christmas for me recently is that my carrier, my cell phone carrier, has implemented this new process. And this new process um, has been awesome because my phone rings, and I look down, and it says, scam likely. Or nuance, new, uh, like a nuisance call, or telemarketer, and I have like felt so empowered. I'm still getting the same amount of phone calls every single day, but it's like I look at my phone and it's like scam likely, and I hit the red button, and I feel so powerful when I do. And I'm just like, I have the power, right? And what was interesting, even in the midst of my little rant here, is that I realized with my phone that I had the same problem, but a different process, and that changed everything. Same problem, just a different process. And I went from being constantly frustrated, um, imagining finding these people and robocalling them to all of a sudden, going throughout the course of my day, slightly annoyed, but really kind of unfazed and no longer dreaming vengeful dreams of how to get the robocollars back. And in our series, as we continue today, called Mastermind, I want to talk about one of the most common pitfalls, one of the most common minefields that we can step into. And I think that the same observation I noticed with my robocall problem and your robocall problem, because 30% of phone calls in North America are robocalls, right? It's extraordinary. 26 billion last year. There'll be more this year. But that what transformed me in the midst of all that was a new process introduced to an old problem. And today I want to look at this common minefield that we all face regularly, This same problem we're all used to called negativity and discouragement. And I want to talk about a new process to deal with it. Because I believe that discouragement and negativity, the same way that robocalls in my life were completely transformed because a new process was introduced, I think that we can introduce a process into our lives that doesn't remove negativity, but at least helps to kind of negate its effects a little bit. Because I don't know about you, but the biggest enemy, the thing that often derails me in my life and my journey is discouragement. And that many of us live with its constant kind of pressure in our lives in subtle, small, and sometimes significant ways. And to dive into that process, I want us to, to look at a story. It's perhaps a story you've never even heard before. That even if you grew up in church, unless you're one that reads the Bible pretty regularly, there's chances are you've never even come across this story. It's in a letter in the Old Testament. Remember, the Christian Bible is a two-volume set. There is the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. And inside the Old Testament is a series of books that chronicles um, a, kind of a large series of different kind of genres. And primarily its focus is on Jewish history and the promise of the promised land and the promise of the promised one. And in the course of the period of Jewish history, kind of situated in the middle of the old Testament is a period of history that historians called the kind of the post exile period. So the 32nd summary of Jewish history, thousands of years of Jewish ancient Jewish history is that Israel um, is a people before their place. That's what they're called. They're called Israel. Then they physically begin to dwell in this land and that land becomes known as Israel. Now, Israel um, is a unique country in the fact that they have God as their king. This theocratic government is what it would be called. And the whole contract, as long as God is their king, they're a nation. And because of some um, kind of periods of time where they've lost sight, of that contract, what happens is they become open to outside influence and ultimately they're conquered through a series of enemies that you probably heard about in high school um, ancient history Babylonians and the Assyrians. Now they come in, they conquer them, and what they do in that time period is devastating. They essentially take the Jewish people out of their land, back to their land, and in the course of that time period, <laughs> What happens to those people is that they even lose the ability to write their alphabet. Um, For those who appreciate ancient history, obviously, I like that kind of stuff. What is amazing is that the Jewish alphabet is transformed. The alphabet, if you ever see modern um, Jewish language, um, it's actually not the same alphabet used during this time period. They lost it. They lost their ability because it was illegal to write in the Hebrew language. So when they finally left, they had to uh, adopt a new language. And so there was something called Aramaic script that was present in the ancient world. They actually took that alphabet and and kind of forced their language into it. So imagine, I mean, that's, that's a lot of backstory, but imagine as a people, we forgot our language. We forgot our ability. We lost the ability to even write our language. Language is so tied to identity that that would be a devastating experience. And so here's the ancient people, and what they're doing in the process is now they're allowed to move back to where they, they came from, and they've really lost who they are. And in the process, they find when they arrive in Jerusalem that the city has been destroyed. It's been devastated. Because the same enemies that conquered them, that wanted to erase their culture, wanted to erase their language, wanted to erase who they were, made sure that they physically destroyed everything too. It would would be like us being conquered by a foreign nation. We're taken back to their country. And then when we finally are able to come back here, everything that we've ever known has been devastated. Boston no longer has a skyline. Fenway is gone. Your homes have been burned to the ground, and all you see is rubble. I mean, it's devastating, especially back then, because back then there wasn't things called deadbolt locks. There, there wasn't the modern um, version of building that we have today. Most homes back then were essentially shaped in mud huts or with thatch roofs or deep kind of mud pressed to form tiles on top of a roof and so these people arrive and everything is gone and the leader this man who the book of nehemiah is written about he is the one in charge of rebuilding it all so he's leading a group of people who have been broken who've lost who they were into a into a city that had been destroyed and the hallmark of a city's security the the this very ancient concept that's not present in our world today was this idea of a city wall. So in the ancient world, the boundaries of a city was its wall. And these walls were massive, 30 feet tall. They would be large enough for chariots to ride on. Towers would be set up because the military would occupy those walls to protect invading enemies because oftentimes uh, wars were fought at the walls of cities. And Jerusalem's wall was gone, which meant that these people had no sense of safety and security. All the enemies that had defeated them the first time still live around them. And so Nehemiah steps into this situation, and all of that backstory lets you know that this is a man who is stepping into a situation that, by definition, is completely steeped in discouragement and disappointment. And what Nehemiah does over the course of the chapter we're about to read, is lay out a process for us that that same problem ends up being transformed because of a new process, a different process. This wall is the focal point of most of Nehemiah because this is the biggest project he undertakes while he's there. And in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, the letter, we begin to join the story already in progress. Nehemiah has finally said, let's begin to build this wall. And he's rallied the people, and they begin. And as the moment that they step into it, discouragement breaks out. And so uh, as I read through it, you're going to notice uh, the, the words on the screen are going to be... Uh, the, they'll be on the screen. But we also have created an app for you. So if you're new here, you can go to um, encounterchurch.com forward slash app. It's a free resource that we've created, and you can download that. And inside is a message notes, and they've also been preloaded for you as well in there to follow along. It says, when Sambalat, Sambalat is an enemy, heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry, was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, one of their enemies, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they even building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the walls of the stones. Now, you have to realize, Nehemiah actually writes this from his memory, from his experience. He's living this, and so he's journaling what's going out. But what I love about the history is you want to pause there because what would happen as he's writing is he would have heard their laughter. You, you can kind of sense it, right? Right? Tobias is like, yeah, even a fox would destroy what they have right now. Because a fox is this tiny little dog. And they're like, even a small little animal bumping up against their wall would just make it crumble. Now, walls were meant to protect you from armies. And yet, he's like, their wall can't even handle a dog. And the guys would have like, (laughs) ha, 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 You know, maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh. And, And so what starts at the beginning of this chapter is... A vicious cycle you have ridicule and then you have a response Nehemiah says hear us, O God! oh God he writes this prayer down for we're despised turn their insults back to their heads give them over as plunder in the land of captivity do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart so woohoo right ridicule response but Verse seven But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. So now if you've noticed, if you're counting, they have even more discouragement. What was kind of a quartet of Of ridicule has now become a massive choir of ridicule. They've went and recruited other people and now they've all shown up and they're heaping ridicule. It says they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Verse nine, but we prayed to to our God and posted a a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much trouble that we cannot even rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, whenever you turn, they will attack us. I mean, it is this constant threat, this constant cycle. And in the ancient Hebrew way of communicating stories, Nehemiah says that they did it 10 times over, which is a, a subtle but very powerful way of saying it. It was always, it was non-stop. Ten times in the ancient Hebrew um, writing system was a way of saying it never stops. He's like, this is where we are. Constant ridicule, constant negativity, constant discouragement, and to top it all off, even our lives are in danger. And yet, Nehemiah manages in the midst of all of this pressure to practice a process that you and I as distance as distant as this passage may be he puts in a process and that is just as powerful for us today as it was for him 2500 years ago you see when we face discouragement when we are pressed with negativity there's oftentimes the uh, a lot of emotion and feelings that come with that we we tend to be distracted from what we were doing right when someone says something to you when you've You start out, you're going to get healthy, it's January 1, and someone makes that comment, well, isn't that what you said last year? It could be small, but it just, it leaks in, and all of a sudden, where you were originally focused, you've been distracted by what they've said, and now you're trying to churn up excuses why this year is different than the last two years, because discouragement distracts. But it doesn't just distract. Discouragement can actually be destructive. John Gottman, who's a researcher in relationships, specifically in marriage, actually um, became famous for chronicling this magic number called the six-to-one ratio, where he could predict, based on watching a video, the couple's likelihood of divorce just by the number of discouragements spoken in relation to the positive compliments. That if he watched a conversation between a couple in their research. And he noticed that there was less than six positive statements to every one negative statement that with each notch down, it increased the likelihood of divorce. This was powerful. He He could walk away and they would make predictions based on the likelihood of relationships continuing. And those who had a really low ratio, almost a one to one or two to one or even under that, it was a negative one-to-one, that what would typically happen is that within a year or so, those relationships had already imploded. Because discouragement is a destructive force. Subsequent researchers have even documented this in our workplaces. It's not a six-to-one ratio. It's it's a little higher because of the relational aspect of it. But it's more closer to 13-to-one, that when researchers observed Relational context and dynamics in boardrooms and in meetings, when there was a number less than 13 to 1, it typically meant that the longevity of that team was at stake, that people were going to turn over. Why? Because they're in a relational environment where they're hearing more discouragement than encouragement. And so, this power of discouragement is destructive. And what Nehemiah does that's different is that Nehemiah doesn't get distracted by discouragement. He actually does something that I think you and I could learn from. He he gathers people together in verse 14. He says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that, we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Now, did you notice that? What did Nehemiah does? He says, come here, come here. They all gather around. And what does he do? He reminds them why they're doing it. They had gotten distracted by the discouragement. They had gotten overwhelmed by the pressure and the negativity. And he pulls them all together. And he says, remember why we're doing this fight for your families, fight for your lives, fight for your homes, do this for God. He causes them to remember their why. I came across an interesting article about the education of Danish children. And it turns out that when Danish children are growing up, in a lot of classrooms, they'll have a poster or even a physical button in the room with the word PID. It's spelled P-Y-T in the Danish language. And that this word is part of the teaching instruction. It's an interesting word. We don't really genuinely have a true kind of corollary to it in the English, but this word pid is something that is taught to Danish children as they grow up, as they deal with frustration and negativity, even to the point that the kids are taught to walk over and hit the button. You see, what pid is, is that when you face negativity, when you face discouragement, when you're trying to work hard and you, you face kind of a roadblock, the problem is hard, you're, you're kind of dealing with um, peer pressure or negativity within the classroom, this idea of PID, this really essential skill, is a call for them. It's a short word, but it has a huge meaning. It means you step back and you refocus, not overreact. And so this idea, when you're, as a Danish little boy or girl, you're taught PID. And when you hear PID, you know, step back, get distance, rethink, step back in. Sometimes PID, if you ever travel or around Danish people, you hear them just say PID in the midst of small frustrations in life. You know, someone cuts them off and they're like, PID. And it's it's something they learned early on. It's, it's in mental activation. It says step back. Get some distance, reorient, then step back in. And this is what I think Nehemiah is doing in this process. He's essentially hitting the ancient Hebrew equivalent of pid with them. He's like, take a step back. Why are we building this wall in the first place? It's for your families. It's for your safety. It's for our security. It's for our hope. It's a good thing. Because when you're in the middle of trying to do something good, when you're in the middle of trying something hard, because hard things are hard, right? Having a great relationship is hard. Having a great relationship with your children is hard. Doing a great job in your work is hard. No good thing is an easy thing. All the great things are hard. And when you start off on the the journey towards that hard, good thing, whether it's personal health, whether it's financial health, whether it's you moving to break out of an addiction, whether it's you moving to restore and to rebuild and to develop a deeper relationship with your spouse or significant other, or whether it's you're trying to build a foundation with your kids, those hard things typically are moving towards and facing a headwind. Sometimes that headwind is what's inside your head and sometimes it's what's being said out of other people's. And the ability to hit, hit, step back and gain distance protects us from being sucked into the power of discouragement, the emotion, the negativity, all those voices that start to churn inside of our head. And we lose sight of why we wanted to work on our relationship because you remember the vows, or you, you remembered when you first started dating that person what the relationship could be. Or you remember the moment you held your child child for the first time and all the hope and potential was so present in that moment. And you uttered a prayer in your heart, I'll never leave you. I'm always going to be here for you. And then life makes it hard. And it's so easy to be discouraged and to be derailed and to be distracted by the emotions that come out of that moment. But by stepping back like Nehemiah did, getting some distance. Remember, he says, as I look things over. Gain the distance so that you can step back in with a refocus. Because refocusing is essential an essential first step in the process of navigating negativity. Because what happens is this process builds, and Nehemiah's ability to gain gain distance, to separate from the emotion of the present moment, sets him up to do something that's essential. It's actually the, the uniqueness about Nehemiah in this chapter that stands out, not just to his enemies, but even to the people he leads. If you notice that when In the course of this long passage, this cycle that's playing out, what happens in the midst of the cycle is something that happens to us regularly, too. Nehemiah is dealing with the enemies. They they show up. They start to say certain things. And it's interesting that through the passage, the people start to repeat the same words that have been spoken over to them. That verses 10 through 12, when you see this dialogue where they're like, we're going to attack you, we're everywhere, and then the people start saying they're going to attack us, they're everywhere. The people are literally repeating the words that the enemy said to them. That's one of the power of discouragement is it starts to loop inside of our mind. Some of you have walked away from hard things. Some of you have given up on relationships. Some of you have given up on moving towards financial and personal health because someone said something to you one day that you've never been able to forget. And the power wasn't the day they said it. The the power came when the day came when you started to say it as if it was true. When you started repeating what was said about you when you started echoing what you once heard. That's the truly destructive power of discouragement is when the person's not even needed there to have the same effect. And this is what happens to the people. We're told by Nehemiah so that we have a context that this happens 10 times over. Why? Because Nehemiah wants us to understand that these people, they've heard it so much that it's now what they're saying to one another. It's what they believe. And Nehemiah, by gaining distance and refocusing on why they're doing this in the first place, why they're trying to rebuild the wall, it puts them in a position to think differently, which is the second critical step. It's not just a refocus, step back and refocus. It's also to step back in, having rethought the whole situation. Nehemiah comes in, and where everyone else is repeating, where everyone else is complaining and griping, And saying, well, this is what they said. This is so true. This is what's going to happen to us. Nehemiah comes in and says in verse 13, Therefore, I stationed some of the families behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. This is a really interesting thing, right? Nehemiah, everyone's talking about how they're going to be attacked, how they're going to be overwhelmed, how the forces are going to crush them. They're just repeating what's already been said. Nehemiah steps in. And instead of focusing on the problem, Nehemiah focuses on the solution. He says, okay, if they're going to attack us, because he's refocused, we, we need to build this wall. Why? Because it's for our personal security and safety. Now I'm going to rethink. He steps back in, and he's not problem-oriented. He's solution-oriented. He steps in and says, okay, if they're going to attack us, where are they going to attack us? Let's put people there. Everyone else is concerned they're going to be attacked. Nehemiah says, well, that's the plan. Okay, well, easy. Well, if part of the wall is finished, let's put people armed at the parts of the wall where it's not finished. Nehemiah steps in with a plan. He doesn't have panic. He doesn't surrender. He says, okay, let's set up a way of dealing with this. I watched our team actually deal with this. Um, Jason was talking about the egg drop yesterday. It was the best one we've ever had. It was extraordinary. And what was neat for me to kind of watch in the back, because I have nothing to do with the event, is our team orchestrating it and, and, and executing it. And so about three or four weeks ago, we got a series of pretty, like, nasty emails, calls. People started rallying, tried to cancel our event. Um, it was pretty kind of just nasty stuff, like, and it went beyond criticism, like, we like criticism, because criticism helps you get better, but this went to, like, presumptuous stuff, um, personal attacks, ridicule, there was this concerted effort, a small group of people, I mean, just a small group of people, like that front row um, size, but a small group of people, not you personally, just the row, okay, we had one of them come here today, because we wanted to make a personal example, okay, Um, and, and so we had this little small handful of people, who started to work together to push back on this event. And when it first happened, there was a little bit of a sense of panic. Here here are a a few people who've completely caused us to lose sight of the thousands of people who were registered who were going to show up. You ever notice that? Like, it doesn't matter how great your day was, how many great things you got told. That one person said something to you, and that's what you take home with you. It's the same way, right? We, we, we're dealing with this. We're processing through it. And all their words and their nasty emails and their links and all their statements kind of flooding our inbox. I say flood. It was like a trickle, but it feels like a flood, right? So I can't believe we got another one of these emails four hours later being inundated with it, right? And so, but you just, you feel all of it because that's what happens when you're in the middle of it. And I was so proud of them because I got to sit in a meeting and watch them because they were like, okay, let's respond to this situation by looking for solutions. If they're going to give us all the reasons, this is the worst event in history because it was basically that. I'm not exaggerating. It was like, what are you doing to the children of this world was the heart of some of these passages. We're like, oh, my goodness. What was cool was... um, so our team got together, and they said, well, okay, that's helpful. Let's think about that from a solution standpoint. What if, this was, what if this was the worst event we've ever had? Why would it have been the worst event? Let's go ahead and solve some of those problems before they even happen." And I sat in a room and I watched our leadership team that oversaw this event. And they thought through all the worst case possible scenarios from like nationwide cellular outages and backup plans with paper in case the network cell towers went down. I mean, to like, you know, crazy things with the helicopter. I mean, it was amazing. I'm just sitting in the room and I'm like, they are doing exactly what Nehemiah did. Instead of panicking, they made a plan. So, what you did it two years ago and it didn't work out. That doesn't mean it's two years ago. You learned something two years ago. You learned that if you didn't have a schedule and if you didn't have a plan, you didn't wake up in the morning and go to the gym. Because only a few of you wake up in the morning and actually want to go to the gym. The rest of us need an equivalent of a pep talk to get out of bed, right? Or some kind of plan where we've already picked out our clothes and it's on our schedule and we're stuck. We have to go do that, right? Like, I mean, so what? Three years ago, it was the worst it ever been. It doesn't mean this year. doesn't. It doesn't mean you can't experience financial freedom this year because you start spending less than you bring in. Yeah, three years ago, you thought credit cards were fun. Well, now it's not because you learned three years ago, right? And that's the beauty of what Nehemiah's solution-oriented thinking does is it pulls you back into the game and it gives you a realization. It gives you an orientation where you realize that while other people can just gripe about their problems, you see the gift with the problem because there's also a solution attached. There is no problem, no word, no discouragement that has ever been spoken over you that does not have a solution to be solved attached to it. There is a better version of you. There is a freer version of you. There is a saving version of you. There is a healthy version of you. And the solution oriented thinking is to step back and to realize there's some steps to access that version of you instead of sitting over here and giving into the chorus of the haters and the naysayers inside your head and around you telling you all the reasons it can't happen. And and Nehemiah recognized by stepping back, refocusing, and rethinking, he could step back in with a secret weapon that no one else saw coming. Nehemiah understood that with the right power supply, even a setback could be turned into a setup for something extraordinary, which is the last part of this process. It is the third rail that fuels the entire thing. It's the plug-in that makes the power happen. That throughout this story this cycle nehemiah has a tendency i don't know if you noticed it verse 4 verse 9 verse 14 he does it time and time again he prays sounds really simple but what nehemiah does is he understands something about prayer that i think for many of us even of those with faith uh, christians that we miss we oftentimes treat prayer as a last resort Even when I was not a spiritual person at all, I still treated prayer as a a last resort. I wasn't a Christian in college, but I sure prayed when I didn't study. Because I was like, man, if there's some divine being up there that knows the A plus squared of something with that calculus, I I mean, I'll take it. I I don't care where it comes from. But most of us, because prayer seems so, like, vague or, like, Weird or I don't understand how it works I don't understand how my cell phone works, but I use it right I mean but we, it's so like strange to us that oftentimes it's the last thing we do but Nehemiah it's the first thing he does he faces ridicule and he prays God you heard their words I heard their words too help me to reorient to refocus to to rethink this situation and it's because I think Nehemiah understood that the power of was not in the process. The power was in the prayer that fueled the process. Because what will happen in the course of everyday life is you and I will become discouraged. You and I will hear words, experience feelings, and we're going to constantly leak the strength and that fuel that's going to fall to the ground. And Nehemiah had an ability to reconnect with God and that would infuse him with the power and the strength that he needed to keep moving forward. And that for some of you, for those who are in this room who are Christians, I would encourage you, start making prayer the first thing you do, not the last thing you do. It doesn't have to be like, there's not a magic formula. There's no special like words that you have to utter. There's no like special connection you need. Like it's, it's not dial up. It's not like you, you know, It's it's just this. It's talking to God. Right? I mean, imagine if you had a child and they walked into the room, and before they opened their mouth, you said, Now I need you to say this phrase seventeen times, and then I need you to speak to me in this way, Oh, holy reverent father, thou with the baldeth head, heareth my simple petition placed before thee. Right? I'd be like, Child, are you okay? Is, did you get hit in the head? Is something wrong? Like, there are no special formulas. If When Jesus was trying to teach his disciples to pray, because this was a, a struggle even back then, what does he do? He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Completely or, reorients the way people think about prayer. One of the most powerful sentences ever uttered. Because up until that point, no one even ever put God in the father box. And he says, the way you should pray is you should talk to him the way you would talk to your parents who loves you, who cares about you. My daughter doesn't need someone to come into the room and say, oh, by the way, um, Chris, your daughter wants to talk to you. She just walks in the room and talks to me. She doesn't need to know someone. She doesn't need to text or call someone. She doesn't need to put money in a box to make that happen. You don't need me to pray for you. He's waiting on you. And there's a power there a power that he has, that he stands willing to give to you in the midst of your hardest, darkest moments. I'm not saying that when you pray, the circumstances will always change, but I am promising you that when you pray, the power for you to walk through your circumstances will come. That I've shared part of my struggle last year in the storyline that we walked through, and the thing that got me through that was sometimes hourly Sometimes, minute by minute, I would have to walk into these little things where I'm just like, God, I need your strength. I need your joy. I need your perspective because I'm overwhelmed. I'm over just, just completely discouraged right now. And that he, as a good father, stands ready to hear you. You don't need anything but you and your words to speak to him. He does the le- heavy lifting. He has the power. And it's one of those transformative things that I think that Nehemiah understood. There, one of my heroes is a guy named George Mueller who um, oversaw an orphanage in Bristol um, back in the 1800s. And George Mueller kept track of every prayer that he prayed to God. Um, over the course of his short time that he, he oversaw this orphanage that he started in Bristol called Ashland Down. Ashley Down Orphanage, he accounted 15,000 different prayers God answered. From food to supplies to necessities of life, and over 10,000 orphans were, were taken care of, brought in off the streets, nurtured, given education and access to like, not just the essentials of life, but things that would help them well into adulthood. Because George Mueller understood that prayer is the first thing we do, not the last thing we do when we face a challenge. And and he was so committed and believed so much in the power of prayer, he actually kept track of what he asked for. And then he would record when the prayer was answered. And over 50,000, you can get his, you can access his journal and count 50,000 of those prayers answered that he prayed. Because I think that there is a version of you. There is someone that you wish you could be that's on the other side of that hard thing that's in front of you. For some of you, that hard thing is you coming to terms with faith and wrestling through who is Jesus and what did he do for you? And that you've been in here and you've processed through that and that your hard thing is, is wrestling that to the ground. For some of you, your hard thing is an addiction. For some of you, your hard thing is that you are drowning in debt and it is crushing you. For some of you, your hard thing is believing that your relationship could be better or that you could have a career that you look forward to every single day or that your children, your adult children, and you could have a vibrant relationship. There's all of us have something on the other side of hard that we long for. We're just not sure we have the strength to make it through. And what Nehemiah does for us is he shows us a process that discouragement, the discouragement we will face doesn't have to derail us in the journey, that it is possible to move forward, to keep walking, and to experience the good and those great things. Because most of us, if I'm being honest, most of us hit a breaking point and we think it's our breakdown. And what we fail to miss is that we all coming, we all on the journey through the hard come to a breaking point. But I think it's not a breakdown point. It can actually become a breakthrough point. But the challenge is, is will you keep walking? Will you keep moving? Will you cry out to God? God, give me strength for the next step. He's not a genie. He's not going to come in and swoop and erase all the bad choices you made or that I made. Let's be honest. Some of us have put ourselves in bad places and no one else did it. We did it. We orchestrated the disaster in our life with the decisions. And the good news of the Christian faith is that there is a God who's not sitting up in heaven saying, well, if you would only done this, you, would yeah, well, you know, I can't help you. God only helps those who help themselves. No, we see through Jesus a God who steps into our brokenness and brings beauty and grace. And for those who are willing to lift their eyes and to cry out for hope, he gives hope, he gives strength, he gives forgiveness. And that that power, who he is, can transform our situations and our circumstances, and he can take those moments, our breaking points, and turn them into breakthrough points turning points in our story where who we are begins to transform because of what he brought into our lives then. And just in case you need proof, Nehemiah 6, verses 15 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When archaeologists discovered a portion of the wall Nehemiah built, they discovered that the wall was nine days feet thick. This thing wasn't going to fall when dogs climbed on it. And when subsequent wall builders would come into Jerusalem and add on to Nehemiah's wall, they continued to build onto the pieces that he had already laid the foundation for. And I love it. When I was writing this passage, I wrote down the line, bam, right after this is like really profoundly theologically deep i just wrote bam I was like, because standing on the other side of the nine foot wall that was 30 feet tall were all the haters, were all the blame kind of naysayers, all the people who had the reasons it would never work, the racists who said and degraded and downgraded everything about those people building the wall. They were on the other side of that nine foot wall. And Nehemiah, like the Jeffersons, was living it on up and the safety and the security of what those people together overcoming discouragement had actually accomplished and built. They had built security. They had recaptured their why. They had stepped into the how. They had formed a new plan. And what came up around them was a great wall around them that protected them, secured them, and enabled them to not just flourish and thrive, but to even reconnect with God ultimately when they reestablished their temple worship in Jerusalem for the next 500 years, became a people that were safe and secure and lived there. This is why I wrote BAM. Because your discouragers, your haters, your naysayers, if you keep moving one day, they'll be on the other side of your wall too. It may be the voices you heard growing up, or it may be the voices that you hear in your present, but I'm telling you in the future, there can be a wall. And on the other side of that wall is all the haters and the discouragers who told you it could never be done, that you could never be healthy, that you could never make better choices, that you could never be a a Christian or religious person, that you could never be a good husband or a good father or a good wife. You could never be financially free because when we step into this process and we connect to that power source, amazing things can happen. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.